Support for Problem Solved comes from Missouri S&T. Accelerate your career with Missouri S&T's 100% online programs. Propel yourself to new professional heights with one of our career-centric programs. Is it the Master of Science in Systems Engineering? The Master of Science in Engineering Management? The Graduate Certificate in Project Management? Or one of our other online programs that will help you advance your career? Crafted by industry leaders, these programs are your gateway to success. Immerse yourself in inspiring success stories from ST and become part of our growing network right from home. Ready to step up? Explore more at online.mst.edu. Solving for tomorrow starts today. and welcome to a special bonus episode of Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. I'm David Brandt, Digital Marketing and Communications Manager for the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers and a producer on this podcast. We know we've been away for a stretch while working on episodes for Season 5, which will premiere in 2024, as well as other projects. But we couldn't wait any longer to talk about today's topic, generative AI, and specifically ChatGPT, which made its public debut only a year ago. It's difficult to argue that the advancements in generative AI this past year have been anything short of phenomenal, not to mention fast. So in this episode, we discuss the brief history, current state, and potential future for this remarkable and controversial technology with Bucknell University's Joe Wilk. Joe has been teaching analytics, operations research, data science, and engineering since 2006. His research is in applied optimization and analytics which has been funded by the National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, DARPA, and the North Carolina Department of Transportation, among others. He's a registered professional engineer, as well as an active member and volunteer for IISE, currently serving on its board of trustees as Senior Vice President of Technical Operations. He earned both bachelor's and master's degrees from Virginia Tech and a doctorate from Penn State, all in industrial engineering. Before we play our recent interview with Joe, I'm obligated to address a few bullet points. First, there was surprising news that broke just three days before we recorded this interview. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman was fired by the nonprofit's board. It was later reported that his dismissal came about after details were allegedly withheld about a new breakthrough with ChatGPT that may or may not be part of a future update to the platform. This was the kickoff of a tumultuous weekend that saw Altman briefly hired to lead the AI team at Microsoft, which has invested in ChatGPT through OpenAI's for-profit subsidiary, and a demand from the majority of OpenAI's workforce to reinstate Altman as CEO, which occurred a couple of days after this interview. All of this began only days after a developer presentation by OpenAI, where Altman introduced ChatGPT's ability to help users build their own GPT or Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And I only explain this recent news for you to underscore that this technology and the players involved are driving change right now in unknown directions, but at great speed. And the story of its evolution may be worth following more closely if you haven't been paying attention until now. And that leads us to our second bullet point, which has to do with the staying power of this episode. Joe Wilk delivered a presentation on research he and others completed about ChatGPT at the IISE Annual Conference and Expo back in May, when ChatGPT was only about six months old. And as he's about to explain, changes have happened since then. A lot of changes. 
So I hope the expiration date on this episode surpasses the milk I just bought at the store, but time will tell. And finally, no questions for this episode, nor this intro, were written by AI. It's all me, I promise. Unless, of course, you think this has been boring so far, in which case, yes, this was all written by a chatbot. With that, let's learn more from Joe Wilk about generative AI and ISEs. What's now? What's next? Joe Wilk, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. We've talked off and on since the annual conference uh, about doing this episode and having this discussion. And I'm really glad to be able to do it now because everything's changing so fast. (laughs) And I really want to get our audience caught up on where things stand with generative AI, particularly chat GPT and other AI tools like it. At the time of this recording, we're talking almost a year to the day since chat GPT first became publicly available. Uh, Though most people only caught on to it in the spring and the summer earlier this year. If you would, for our audience, explain what ChatGPT is, what language models like ChatGPT are, and what they can do. And if you can, summarize just what kind of whirlwind year this has been in this area of artificial intelligence. All right. There's a lot of questions in that, but I'll I'll try to be succinct and uh, have some fun with this. So ChatGPT is a generative AI tool. A generative AI is artificial intelligence that generates something, um, in this case, text, um, but also you can generate images, video, and the like. Now, specifically, ChatGPT is an application of a large language model. So it is generating text. And um, it was built off of, um, I'll, I'll use kind of common words here, it was built off of billions of words. And so probably on the order of 500 billion words were used to create ChatGPT that we all started using earlier in 2023 or maybe even late 2022. Those words came from Wikipedia. They came from classic texts such as Shakespeare and Charles Dickens, et cetera. But also a lot of those words came from just a a random search of the Internet Now, in some cases, the websites would have been, you know, edited and curated by professionals such as like a a government website or a healthcare data website or maybe even a sports website. Uh, However, other websites, um, it just looked through those randomly and it was just following people's texts and chats, et cetera. Um, And those obviously are not necessarily edited by professionals. So it basically learned the common language of people at the time. Now, ChatGPT4 came out in March of 2023, and that was actually built on the order of maybe 13 trillion words. Okay, so oh, 500 billion <laughs> to 13 trillion. Um, and uh, so, you know, th- that's that that's a big movement. Now, where we are today. Um, ChatGPT, the paid version, so it's about $20 a month plus tax uh, for an individual user. The paid version, um, it can connect to the internet, so it can link you to references. Um, It does have a number of plugins, um, some of which I think are kind of more for that organization to kind of say, oh, we have a ChatGPT plugin. So for example, certain travel websites have a ChatGPT plugin, 
but I think you probably would just be better off going to their website. That's just my opinion. Um, however, I, I have found, I, I won't name names here, but I have found one that's very useful. Um, there is one where you can use chat GPT and you can describe a website that you'd like to create and it will actually go find a domain that is available for purchase and it'll suggest it to you. So oh, fascinating. there's a plugin that will do that. Um, but it also now has the ability for you to upload files and then it can analyze those files. Now, again, this is all the paid version. Um, so, for example, if you had a, an Excel file and you needed to r- run a regression, uh, you could do that um, using ChatGPT. Now, it will default to using Python code to do the analysis. So it's not going to do it necessarily in the software that you would choose. It would do it using um the Python code. Now, to get to your last question, though, I really wanted to think about this because it has been a whirlwind in the, in a year. Um, you know, what's the biggest change? And I think the biggest change is a year ago. If you wanted to use AI, you either needed to know how to program a computer, or you had to have software that you purchased to run a computer on your computer to do AI. Now, all you need is a device that has internet connection and you, anybody, can use AI to do something. And so it's made it available to everyone. The discovery of it on on my end personally, it really was just just mind blowing. And and I know I uh, in my notes uh, and and questions I had offered to you in advance, I, I mentioned uh, the movie Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. and all I could think of <laughs> when I was watching Oppenheimer was this. The questions in my mind were in the beginning was just okay, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. How am I going to use this? Right. What is this ultimately going to do for me? In the same way that search changed things for us 25 years ago. And, and and similar to how even web design has evolved, where you used to have to do things in straight code, but now you have all these different platforms like WordPress and Squarespace and all these builders and everything, where if you were somebody who, again, to your point, you had to have a certain skill set before and you had to have certain knowledge before, but now there's an easy platform that's easy to use for anybody. Correct. Yeah, I agree. So you actually were the first... Uh, at least the first IISE member that I knew of who approached the topic of chat GPT. I was able to attend an incredibly fascinating presentation you put together at the IISE annual conference and expo in New Orleans back in May. And the room was overflowing. Everybody was curious. I think this had been out about a little over five months now publicly. And of course, students mostly <laughs> were, were very curious about uh, what's behind this. How can they use it? And I thought you did a really great job presenting it. If I'm not mistaken, did you also deliver this at a regional conference before that? Northeast region, NYU. And I believe that was in late March. So at that point, it had been a few, just a few months, really, at that point, right. still brand new and still right. fresh. So tell us a little bit about that presentation and the sorts of research that you've worked on related to ChatGPT in this new era of AI. Right. Well, thank you for everyone who attended the session. And also, um, I've I've actually had some follow up sessions. Uh, there's different chapters have reached out to me uh, to you know basically do a reprise on uh, you know webinars and stuff like that. So very appreciative of it. I also need to give a shout out to some of my collaborators. Um, for example, one of which his office is right across the hall from mine. His name is Daniel Street um, at Bucknell University, and he's an accounting professor. And he came to me over the Christmas holiday 
and said, Hey, we need to write this paper. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and, and I hadn't even really, I had heard of chat GPT, but hadn't even touched it. And so I started um, using it and um, he looking at it from an accountant's perspective, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense from an engineering perspective as well. You know, you have a highly quantitative field um, and you have to be very, um, it's very important to scrutinize the work that you're doing as either an accountant or an engineer. And so in our professional realm, you know, we have to be able to verify what we're doing. We have to be able to, and people have to trust that what we're doing is accurate and correct. And, you know, it could end up being something that's important to the public. So we, you know, you have to take extra care. And so our work initially was, you know, just how can you use this professionally to, to answer your question? And we also wanted to look at it not just from a professional standpoint, but also from an education standpoint. So, for example, if we were going to build, say, a good case study uh, to use in classrooms so that students could understand, well, this is how you can use it appropriately and this is how not to use it. And, and so forth and so on. And so my presentation, um, both um, at NYU and then also at the IISE annual conference in New Orleans, really focused on three things. Um, what is ChatGPT, which we already covered in an earlier question. Um, also, some of the common pitfalls um, and how to use it professionally. Um, so, you know, basically just scrutinize it, um, you know, give it clarification because um, treat it like a conversation, but you're you are allowed to ask follow-up questions and and the like. Um, but the other thing that I touched on in the presentation was basically how smart is it? Um, and I tested it. I gave it some um, industrial systems engineering questions that I would give students to see how it performed. And I know we're going to talk more about that later. Um, now, in terms of what I've been doing lately, and this gets to something um, that you and I were talking about offline a few minutes ago. Um, Chad GPT um, right now, um, they are thinking about, they've come out in the news basically saying they're going to start offering kind of like a premier service to organizations and the organizations can basically upload several files and they can basically have their own internal chat GPT, if you will. And it would be shut off from the rest of the world, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, one of the things that I've been fascinated with is just developing my own large language model. Um, and in particular, when I say my own, you know, preferably on my own computer. Um, so it can be very big. It would have to be pretty small. Um, and there are some apps out there that will allow you to do it. Um, in fact, um, one of them is actually was developed by a chat GPT or open AI employee um, and made it publicly available on GitHub. And what I was able to do with some other collaborators is we were able to build a, a large language model and we trained it on um, information from the NIST government website, the, the Institute and Standards website. And we also um, used some information from MITRE, which is a federally funded government um, research organization. And we took that information and we were able to determine um, some potential cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And we were then able to go to another system and test whether these were actual vulnerabilities or not. And then those that were, we were able to add them to the list of things that needed to be explored and to be verified. And so basically, we were able to build our own internal large language model. 
Now, we did not use ChatGPT for this. We did this all internally. Um, but you can imagine the things you can do. Um, the GitHub app, by the way, they basically um, use about a thousand lines of Shakespeare. And then they have you ask it questions and it responds to you in Elizabethan and it sounds like Shakespeare's. <laughs> um, I told my my daughter, um, but obviously this would break a number of laws if I made this commercially available. But I told my daughter, you know, if I had a PDF version of Harry Potter, I could create the next Harry Potter book. Um, but it would only be for her because we couldn't sell it. It would be against the law and unethical to make it publicly available. Of course. Ethics is the word that uh, comes to mind, at least it has for me the last several months. You work in academia. There was a lot of discussion uh, back in the summer, and I'm sure that's been continuing, uh, about academic policies surrounding the use of AI, including ChatGPT. What's your stance on that? From people I've talked to, it's been a mix of, yes, students should be able to use the tool because it's available and it's there and they're going to have to know how to learn because this may very well become uh, part of our nomenclature and I'm part of our regular everyday technology use going forward. Others saying uh, it kind of opens the door for them to take some uh, shortcuts to certain endeavors. What's your view as it relates to academia? So remember, I teach, you know, analytical and quantitatively generated courses. Um, so I, I, I do realize I'm in that realm. Um, I think faculty and students, uh, they need to use it responsibly. Uh, students need to be taught how to use it responsibly. Um, so that means we have to use it. Um, I think it's also important to teach them how to use it efficiently as well. Um, so, for example, um, and you kind of mentioned this, you know, when I use it, I use it for a subtask. And then I, you know, constantly am verifying and scrutinizing its result and modifying it to make it my own. Um, that's very different than just asking it question one from the homework, writing down the answer, asking it question two and writing down the answer. That's not that's not verifying anything. That's just copying. And so, you know, I would I would emphasize that with students that that's not how you want to use this tool. You're not getting the most out of it. Uh, but I also think the other thing that's important, and this is true for academia and other industries in general, we, we've had tools come out sure. forever to make our industry better. And, you know, for example, if, if I were doing a writing task, I may use ChatGPT to help with some ideation and getting some thoughts on paper, but then I'm going to quickly switch over to Grammarly to ensure that it's written in a professional manner. Because ChatGPT, its writing is not professional. Um, it is, I would say, slightly below professional. It's conversational, but it's it's not professional. And then what you can do is you can use you know multiple tools to actually have a really good product at the end. Now, all of that being said, though, um, I mentioned earlier that ChatGPT ChatGPT four was built on the order of you know thirteen trillion words. Um, you do not want to be giving multiple choice tests um, to college students anymore, unless it's you know on paper in a classroom, no internet capabilities. You know they're, they're not able to use a computer or their phone to answer the questions. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and nowadays, you know, SATs, bar exam and all those things, they're they're at a testing center. And so you can't use the Internet to answer the questions. 
Um, but that was the version of ChatGPT that was in the news saying, oh, it was passing the bar exam and it was acing the SATs. Well, it's because, you know, they basically have all of these words that they're able to search off of and, and then produce an answer. And so multiple choice just makes it that much easier for them. Right. Um, the other thing I'd like to mention, if they have the paid version of ChatGPT, they also have the plugins, one of which is Wolfram Alpha. And Wolfram Alpha can do calculus. And so now you, and that, by the way, that tool already existed. So Wolfram Alpha already existed, but now you have it combined with ChatGPT. And so, you know, for for folks that are doing even more heavy quantitative stuff, the tools are still out there, but they were already out there. I'm just saying they're now merged together. Absolutely. Now, if I was teaching creative writing or English, I think I would have a little bit more hesitation. Sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, I don't teach people how to write, um, at least in terms of a composition type course. And so, again, for those people who are my colleagues, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to recommend. But for, for the engineers in the room, I recommend that we need to teach our students how to use it and to avoid multiple choice tests. Seems to be the matter of application, not so much the you know subject matter per se, but when you're when you're trying to teach someone a certain skill, if it can be amplified or expedited through a tool like this, it seems like it's appropriate. They need to know how to use it because certainly if they don't, somebody else will when it, when it comes to their professional work. Um, you know, if they find themselves in a situation in their in their career where it's either, OK, do this based on my knowledge or by hand or what have you versus now nah, I'm going to throw it to ChatGPT, flip on a couple of plugins and, you know, have this done in a few minutes. The latter is going to probably be the preferable option. And any any employer is going to look to that person, uh, you know, as, as the one to hire. Right. I, I would add, though. I have talked with some folks in English and, and those fields. They are very concerned about copyright law. Sure. Now, the, the, the issue, though, is none of us in the room were lawyers. So we're just kind of guessing what the rules are. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I do think that is an issue, but it's an issue that I'm not qualified to answer. No, absolutely. And and nor, nor am I. And certainly it's something that already has come up um, in front of Congress um, at least at least once. And hopefully again, I mean, mm -hmm. this is still a little bit of wild, wild west. There's really no regulation to speak of. Um, it's really been a matter of the companies. It's been a matter of the users. Um, yeah, those are questions I think that need answers. But so far, the technology is outpacing the conversation. We'll put it that way. Right. And and I would add that I actually think the regulation is going to probably be faster in Europe than in the United States. I believe this last week of October the administration, the United States, um, the executive branch, they released a report about, you know, AI and ethical uses of AI. And this was, you know, highly anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, but what was interesting is much of that report was very similar to AI regulations. And well, not regulations, but recommendations mm -hmm. that the EU proposed in 2021. Mm -hmm. Now, I realize the EU is not a country and their recommendations still have to be um, 
you know, they have to be laws adopted by their member countries. But, you know, they're two years ahead. Right. And so in many ways, I think Europe may lead in terms of the law. I'm not sure about the ethics, but in terms of the law, I think Europe may lead. Well, that certainly was the case, I I think, with social media. Um, The EU took Mm -hmm. a lot more actions, set up a lot more regulations uh, and and recommendations about how to manage uh, social media within their member countries. And that's certainly further along than here in the U.S., Even social media in the U.S. is still largely wild, wild west. Back to your presentation at the annual conference, though, one of the examples you used was in solving math problems. And you've sort of touched on this already. Uh, You also discussed how it replies with what it intends to be or insists is uh, factual information. In both examples, you urge the audience to apply scrutiny and verify. In one of your slides, you quoted, you cannot trust ChatGPT for facts and must verify. So in your observation, has the need for scrutiny and verification grown or lessened when it comes to responses by ChatGPT or other LLMs? What advice would you give a student who has quickly come to rely on it as a study tool or resource for completing assignments? So a a few words here. Uh, So ChatGPT3, which is the free version, um, it is still very much a scrutinize and verify situation. So it, it still doesn't know math. It still doesn't know facts. Um, it still um, acts like it does. <laughs> so you have to be careful, um, particularly with technical and mathematical problems. That being said, though, ChatGPT4, the paid version with the appropriate plugins, depending on the questions you're mm-hmm. answering, um, I would I would upgrade that to a trust but verify <laughs> um, tool. So it goes from scrutinize and verify to trust, but verify. Um, so I think Chad GPT four now, um, you know, I, I would say that if, if you asked it a regular question, that's not multiple choice. Um, Chad GPT four is probably a B student. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's multiple choice, it's probably a or B it's, it gets better. Um, whereas Chad GPT three is probably still a failing student, um, without, oversight. Um, Now, the other thing I want to mention here, though, is in both cases, the ChatGPT3 and ChatGPT4, their final answers that they present to you will pass kind of the eye test. Like you'll think they're right. Mm -hmm. But then once you start scrutinizing it, you're like, oh, wait, that's wrong. Like they did that math equation wrong. Or, or they didn't actually do the second step of this question that I asked to do that has three steps. They did step one and step three, but not step two. And so um, you got to be careful because it has the appearance of being correct. It's not obvious to the novice um, view. Mm-hmm. And again, ChatGPT4 was built on such a large corpus. So it is much better. I mean, it just knows so much more things. You also explained how ChatGPT3, uh, how it did when given three tests in a final exam from an engineering economy course. Explain some of the details about these tests and how well ChatGPT did against the results from your students. Now, this was back in May. So is this an experiment that you've run since as ChatGPT has evolved over time? To answer your last question first, um, this is on my to-do list. I have not rerun the experiment. Gotcha. Okay, so and... In fact, because 
Um, you know, ChatGPT3 came out and then 4, and then we had the plugins. They weren't even all run at the same time. So if this were under peer review, I probably would have get gotten hosed by the reviewers. Right. All of that being said, um, the tests, so there are three tests and a final exam. The three tests were primarily workout questions. So no multiple choice. You kind of have to show your steps, work it all out. Um, Chad GPT-3 could not do basic time value of money questions. Mm -hmm. um, it could even, even single step or single transition. So going from, say, a present value to a future value, it was not consistently able to do that. Um, Chad GPT-4 can't. So Chad GPT-4 consistently can go from a present to a future value, no problem. Where Chad GPT-4 fails, though, is when you start giving it these multiple step questions where it's like, okay, you got to move something from the present to the future and then compare it to something else and then bring it back to, and, and, you know, resolve the question, you know, at the end. And so basically where it kind of breaks down is in the multiple step part of a question. Um, ironically, that's where, you know, some students also <laughs> <laughs> fail as well. So, you know, a B student, that's a CB student, that's where they're going to struggle, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, Chad GPT-4 is a CB student. It struggles with the multiple steps and not being able to get, you know, a check from the professor that, yes, you got step one right now, go on step two. Um, all of that being said, though, my final exam, I tended to use these FE practice questions for my final exam. And so the FE exam is multiple choice. Mm -hmm. And so ChatGPT3 did a little bit better percentage wise because, you know, we can guess. Um, but ChatGPT4 actually, you know, got a, a passing, I think a high C um, on the uh, FE exam style questions. And that, to me, is showing partially that not only is it able to do some of the math, but it was also able to just eliminate some of the questions. I even you can read its corpus when it produces the output. You can read it and it would say something to the extent of, you know, um, answer choice A is eliminated because of this. So it was using process of elimination. Right. Um, which is a good test taking strategy if you if you have multiple choice tests. Um, so. All of that being said, um, again, to my faculty colleagues listening to the um, podcast, I highly recommend you eliminate multiple choice questions from your exams, unless you're going to do it on paper, you know, without the use of ChatGPT, you know, capabilities. Changing gears a little bit, ChatGPT is not the only LLM out there. There is Google's Bard, there's Anthropic's Claude 2, and uh, Meta's Llama. Uh, and when I say all those words in a row, it all sounds kind of Greek, but they all have a similar function and a similar purpose. Do you personally have a primary LLM among these that you use most often, or do you frequently use or experiment with various platforms? How does ChatGPT stand against all of these other competitors? It's my opinion that chat GPT is, is still ahead of the other, the other ones out there. Um, I think Claude and Bard are kind of like behind it, you know, just behind it. And then Llama is behind mm -hmm. them. So I would, I would have, you know, chat GPT, you know, on the top of the podium, I would have Claude and 
and Bard kind of second, you know, tied for second. And then I put Llama in fourth place. Um, and that's not just from my work. That's just me reading things as well. Um, that being said, Claude it is becoming, it, they've made Claude easier to use, similar to ChatGPT. You can now, you can create an account, you can go use it. They make it available for free. Uh, whereas um, there's actually some people who had access to Claude, you know, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. but they didn't make it publicly available. People were just using it for themselves. And so this this ability now, you know, to make it publicly available, I think is is useful. Now, how do I use it and what do I use it for? Um, I primarily use chat GPT if, if I'm not doing it for a research task. Okay. And and you have to keep in mind, I am still trying to publish papers and do stuff with ChatGPT. Right. But um, if I'm using it just for a, a general task, it's typically for a writing task because it's a large language model. I need to write, I need to write something. And um, typically what I'll do is, um, you know, for example, I need to email a donor, um, you know, a, someone who supported my department and like a thank you note. And and, but I wanted to find just the right words, right? And so I, I gave it some kind of ideas about what I wanted it to say. And then I, I let it give me like 10 different <laughs> choices. And then I found one that I liked. I was like, oh, this looks pretty good. And then, as I said before, I take that and put it into Grammarly so it actually looks professional and, you know, it, it changed it a little bit. Sure. So for me, I use it for writing generation. Um, however, if I was an English professor or a creative writing professor, maybe I don't need that. Maybe I need it for something else, um, but I don't need it for math. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll use my, my own brain for math. <laughs> good, good, good. We're all still trying to use the brains. Let's, let's encourage that among the listeners. Use your brains. <laughs> don't, don't just trade it over for chat GPT or any of this. Use your brains. Um, but this kind of stokes a little bit of the fear I had uh, after trying ChatGPT myself for a little while back in the spring. Um, I got real nervous about my work. <laughs> I got real nervous uh, briefly uh, about my, uh, we'll say, career prospects uh, because it, it the capabilities uh, were astonishing and it certainly can do a lot of what my field requires. The NYU professor and author Scott Galloway, who I I listen to and and read a lot from, he frequently argues in his writings and podcasts that AI won't replace human workers, but humans who know how to use the AI will replace other human workers. In your presentation at the annual conference, you said, quote, use LLMs to enhance rather than replace human expertise. Is it your hope that AI technology coming out of this era or in the near future accommodates the need for the human in the loop? Or does that test ultimately fall to all human users? So the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, but a, a few things come to mind. Um, first, um, right now, Chad GPT and others, mm-hmm. other LLMs, they have the ability to connect to the internet. And that was a big step. And that scared me at first, by the way. Um, so they have the ability to connect to the internet. They have the ability to write code, so forth and so on. However, 
All of that being said, it's still a closed system right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by a closed system, a user can ask ChatGPT a question um, and give it data. And ChatGPT can create code, create analysis, give the analysis back to the user, um, including code that executes whatever analysis there is. Um, But all of that's done internally, and it would then be up to the user to put it somewhere externally. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by a closed loop there. And I think that's very important. Um, Once we get to a place where ChatGPT can not only create everything and then also upload it somewhere. And, you know, I think that that's a line that we haven't crossed yet that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that does kind of scare me, it, just to be honest, because you could very quickly ask ChatGPT with one of its other services, it can create images mm-hmm. and it could create an image that's inappropriate and then all of a sudden upload it somewhere and, you know, then it's it's there forever. Right. And so um, for me, I do think there needs to be a human in the loop. When I was talking in the summer at the conference, the human in the loop was more for the expertise part, the, the verifying part, the trustworthy part. But I also think it's important to have the human in the loop for the ethical part. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, at least as of right now, the rules and the laws are it's the user that is liable here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if, if I have chat GPT do something horrible or say something horrible, it's in a closed system. So I would have to then broadcast that out and then it would be on me. So if chat GPT creates something horrible, you know, you can ignore it. You can delete it. Whereas once you make it publicly available, then it's out there. In using ChatGPT, you and I and everyone else who, whether the free plan or the paid plan, whichever one, are we not also feeding the beast, so to speak? So we we are. Um, there is, the, the, and they haven't. OpenAI has not necessarily released how we're feeding it and and how much they're using it. Mm-hmm. They have the thumbs up and the thumbs down feature. I personally don't use that. Neither do I. But I I imagine they are kind of looking at what we ask and then trying to kind of figure out, you know, what's going on. But, you know, users are have gotten better at using ChatGPT. So, for example, people now know that you can give ChatGPT a persona. Right. So you can say, ChatGPT, I have a test tomorrow. It's on this topic. Please be my tutor and ask me questions. And that's that's actually something that's very good at. It's, you know, maybe not perfect, but it, it can give you some sample questions that you may not have thought about. It adopts the role, right. basically. It really does. It understands what we mean by a tutor. It understands what that person is in real life and basically tries to play that character, if you will. Right. Now, one one thing I like to ask it is when I'm asking it to do something and this would be probably a little bit more than just writing a simple email. I will give it instructions, but then I'll say, before you perform any task, do you have any clarification questions for me? 
And a couple of times it's actually asked me some questions. <laughs> I was like, wow, it's like, it's like, I'm, I'm giving, it's like a, a personal assistant. I've, I've said, Hey, do you have any clarification questions before I send you off on this task? And it does. It, we have a little back mm-hmm. and forth. I clarify some things and it, I assume it's going to do better. Unfortunately, I, I didn't go back and like test it or anything, but, but to get back to your original question, humans in the loop, I think are important. Um, and it's because the humans have to be the one that actually applies whatever it is that Chad GPT creates. Um, and this is particularly true for the plugins. Okay. So for example, you know, if you have like the, the plugin for the travel website mm-hmm. uh, with Chat GPT, uh, you can use it to kind of like book your travel, but you still need to officially like log in and put your own credit card number in there for it to actually officially book it. But it can it can fill out all the you know the forms and everything for you and get you right there to where then you just click oh yes I want this like it can get you all the way to the end almost. And so I do think, um, you know, there's going to be some thoughts there. Um, now, I am worried that if it was fully able to integrate with the outside world, that we would see some disasters. Um, and we see this, we've seen this in other areas where automation has interacted with humans and it, and it gets to make decisions. Um, without humans in the loop. So, and, and, you know, horrible things such as, you know, the um, self-drive, sorry, the auto driving vehicles, you know, you know, having an accident and hurting someone, killing someone, that sort of thing. But that's going to happen. Once you make something fully automated, um, that will lead to problems. And some of them you can't foresee until they actually happen, then you can make corrections. Right. But that's an automation thing. That's not really a chat GPT thing. That's just automation in general. Right. Um, now, I will say, and this gets to back to your original question as well, with respect to industrial and systems engineers, artificial intelligence is now being used to automate tasks. Mm-hmm. Industrial and systems engineers, for probably over a century now, if you think about manufacturing, we have been involved with automating tasks for a long time. Right. Now, the difference, though, is now instead of it being in manufacturing, it's, you know, with computers and it's and it's it's automating like writing something, which is something that we wouldn't have comprehended 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are now able to automate creative tasks. And I think that has caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, But will it lead to fewer jobs, perhaps? Um, And as you said, it could also lead to maybe one person doing the job of many mm-hmm. because they're able to automate things. So for example, we're meeting now on a Monday, uh, 10 years ago, you know, the, all the football games that were played on Sunday, it was an, an individual writer had to write all the summaries, right? Mm-hmm. All of that's now being automated. And then somebody's just going through and reading it over to make sure it sounds appropriate and maybe correcting a few misspelled words here and there. Yep. Um, but to be honest, that was happening before ChatGPT. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it was. Yeah. Because you you called out my former profession, which is newspapers and uh, <laughs> daily news. Um, that is very much an area where, uh, for example, what you're describing are uh, box scores. And box scores are simply summaries with final scores of games and you know variety of sports, uh, usually over the weekend, if not you know daily overnight with baseball. 
I used to work with people who would write those up and they would, you know, finalize the scores and they would do their own editing. Then they'd run it through a copy editor. Then they'd run it through the sports editor. There was a lot of steps to getting it, you know, on the page. This kind of technology has shortened that process and with, and with good reason, because, well, you know, bottom line, time is money. And, and if you know anything about the uh, newspaper industry, they don't have a lot of money. So, <laughs> but they, they also don't have a lot of time. So, so something like this is, right. has been a help for, for a long time. And uh, certainly the evolving technology now um, really only speeds that up and uh, takes, you know, to like you, like you've described, takes at least one human out of the loop. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Such as my former industry. What else do you see on the horizon since ChatGPT became publicly available? We've seen all kinds of related models in various media. Uh, you mentioned image generators before, um, Dolly, which is open AIs, uh, mid journey is a very popular image generator. Um, and even video tools that allow for AI to conduct its own editing, uh, Adobe, for example, in their creative suite, I see it now with a generative fill for uh, Adobe Photoshop. It's really some amazing technology, but it's also all tough to keep up with as entrenched as I am with media and with creative design. It's difficult <laughs> just to, just to keep up with it all. So. What else should we keep an eye out for uh, in the near future? And what do you think specifically industrial and systems engineers want from AI? And what do you think they really need from AI? So I agree with what you're saying. And I think that the tools, the softwares that we use now, many of them are going to start adopting their own plugins or add-ins. And they, maybe they partner with OpenAI and ChatGPT to kind of have it embedded into their system, or maybe they're like Adobe and they go out and build their own. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they're going to have to do it to keep up. Um, you know, these major softwares that we use, um, and I'm not going to name names except for the Adobe one that you already mentioned. Um, I fully expect the top tier softwares to build in these features. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, one of my colleagues uh, said that um, it used to be that Python was the most common programming language, but that will be replaced by English because we can simply just ask it to do something for us. Now, we'll still have to piece it together. You'll still need to know how to program right. so that you can put things together and, and get them to work. Um, so where do industrial and systems engineers fit into this? I think they should anticipate upgrades to their favorite software uh, packages, um, and they're going to incorporate generative AI um, I do think that industrial systems engineers understanding kind of the system mindset, um, maybe they can uh, work with that. Maybe they can find a place there for themselves um, to help. Um, for example, um, right now we all have phones. When we go to text someone, they'll suggest words or if we're typing an email, it'll suggest the end of our sentence. Um, but I fully imagine one day where um, my word processor will not only recommend a sentence, it'll probably recommend a full paragraph. Mm. Like, I think we're getting, we're, we're closer to that full paragraph than we realize. We've talked about this a little bit already about uh, your day-to-day -day professional use of chat GPT. Um, I use it professionally, you use it professionally. 
I also happen to use it personally. I use it to refine meal plans. I use it to refine exercise routines. I use it to uh, write certain communications to family members where, uh, especially around the holidays where, you know, sometimes being around family can be tough. And if you need a little bit of a brainstorming partner to, to help you find, find the right touch uh, to, to send a note to the cousin. <laughs> so, um how have you used it in your personal life? Uh, if it's not too intrusive to ask for me, it's become a little bit of a default tool like Google has. I have an Android phone. So when it comes to search, I naturally just, you know, say, Hey, Google, or I, or I click on the search bar. The chat GPT has really also become a default move for me. If I'm thinking I need a question answered, or if I'm trying to come up with the right word for something, I don't go to thesaurus.com or dictionary.com to come up with that word. I start with ChatGPT. How has that been for you? So I, I still primarily use it for research tasks. Um, and that's because I'm testing it, you know, against certain things. Mm -hmm. And again, hopefully <laughs> for publications to be to be had later. Um, one of the things that my colleagues and I, are, I recently used it for, and this was for a research project, is we were trying to conceptualize a new restaurant. Oh, wow. And so... <laughs> thinking about like what location, uh, what genre of food, what should our menu look like? And and then we we started asking it like legal questions, like, well, how do I form, you know, an LLC that will can, and that's where it kind of got lost. Mm -hmm. But um, it actually was very good at the creative type. It, it came up with a great menu um, for a type of food that I've never really eaten before. So I'm not sure if it was good or not. <laughs> but all of that being said, it, it, it can be very useful for creative tasks. Um, I have done something similar, you know, writing a thank you note to a family member. Um, I also was having fun with it one time. I gave it some details and then asked it to take those details and convert it into a song mm -hmm. um, with like, you know, lyrics and stuff. And and it was kind of cute. I, that was mostly just for fun. That wasn't. Sure, really sure. <laughs> um, now, it has not become my default for search, I will admit. And that's primarily because um, I tend to search for facts and 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 current news, such as what is today's weather? Right. Um, what is um, what was the score of last night's game? Uh, what's the traffic? And occasionally, you know, like world news or something. And it's not and I know it's not going to know right. that. So I don't even bother. Now, where it has become my default, though, is I used to use like Stack Overflow and whatnot for code help. Now it's become my default for code help. Yeah. Okay. So that is one place where it has kind of taken over like my new default. Um, but so far, I guess I just don't search enough for historical type things. I'm I'm tend to search mostly for very recent things. Right. And and I I use the paid version. And in that I am like you, trust but verify. <laughs> so so again, it's not to just take by default what it what it's giving me, but it gives me just sort of a starting point. It's it's sort of if I'm, you know, like creating a restaurant or just those kinds of just out of left field ideas. If it's an idea I've had in the back of my brain of um, maybe, uh, you know, I've been trying to jumpstart writing a novel for years and I'm trying to maybe extrapolate what the characters are about, you know, and those kinds of requests. Um, that's been super helpful for me. And it gives me a jumping off point where it's like, okay, I've got this idea out. Accountability partner is the wrong word, but certainly a partner in the moment to help me determine, okay, what's the next question to ask? And I think that yeah. has been really useful in a lot of different applications. 
so, but having said all this, again, we we've talked about, you know, we're feeding the beast as we give it input and it's, it's, you know, it's spitting back out what it thinks is the next best response. There's some fear in all of this. So what risk do you believe exist in this constantly evolving era of AI? What are the promises for ISEs in particular with this technology? And are there any common misconceptions? Uh, I, I guess the one that comes to mind most is all of this is going to ultimately lead to Skynet, <laughs> which is what <laughs> sort of the default stereotypical doomsday scenario. The only things we seem to know about AI is what we've seen in the Terminator movies. <laughs> but, but obviously that's not the case. So I, I think that the, the top two things that in terms of risks are the ethical issues and then the private um, personal rights issues. Mm. I actually am not as worried about employment loss, but to be fair, I haven't thought about it as holistically as other people have. Uh, but the reason I haven't really worried about employment loss is we've been advancing technologies since, you know, humans existed. And yet we've always found things for us to do. Like there's like humans are very good at advancing technology, but also staying employed right um as as a human race i'm not talking about individuals but as a human race right um so i feel like we will evolve with the labor market however with respect to privacy and ethics i touched on this um before i think europe is leading here um because for example in europe uh, the citizens they have the right to be forgotten and so they were able to really think about, you know, how can we put safeguards in place for data privacy? Um, and, you know, if something, if somebody's information is out on the internet, how can we ensure that it gets taken off? And Europe, you know, they, they figured that out. Um, the United States, I believe California was looking into that a little bit and they did pass a few laws, but I'm not sure if the rest of the country has really gotten on board with the whole idea. Um, with respect to some of those ethical boundaries. Now, where can ISCs uh, play a part? I believe with our technology training, but also kind of our systems mindset, I really would like for some of us to be at that table um, because I think we can actually kind of think about the world where you know humans and technology and systems have to come together and coexist. I think we're we're people that can actually help with that. Um, in terms of misconceptions, this is this is one that might take us out into right field, but hopefully that's okay. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions with Chat GPT is the number of of users. I remember in March and April, um, news organizations, and I was citing them in my presentations. Um, and I remember saying, you know, that, oh, Glassdoor.com said this and Fishbowl said this. And it was like 30 to 50 percent of people had used ChatGPT. And I remember saying, I think I'm skeptical of this because everyone in my family, I'm the only one that's even heard of it. Right. And, and I would <laughs> share so that sentiment like, with uh, friends, family. Um, <laughs> I introduced my father to it uh, well, a, few, a few months ago. And of course, for him, he's retired, but he had heard of it in the news yeah. and he wanted to get a better understanding of what it was. And I just thought, oh, this will be a fascinating experiment for myself. 
we got them the free, you know, the free version, show them how to log yeah. in. I said, talk to it like you're talking to me. Ask it questions like you would ask me questions. And he was absolutely stunned. Now, if I were to call my father right now while we were recording this podcast, say, hey, hey, Pop, how uh, how often have you uh, looked at ChatGPT since I showed it to you back in? I think it was in July. Uh, how often have you done that? Exactly. Zero. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So um, the Pew Research Center just released a report in the last couple of weeks that basically pegged the number at 18% of American uh, workers. And they did a much more rigorous survey. And so I think the big misconception here is the number of users. Um, I think people are curious about it. Um, but for many people, it's not impacting their daily life. Um, now, students might be using it. <laughs> I'm using it, of course. Um, but here's when it will start impacting their daily, daily life. Once it starts to be part of the apps that they use on their phone or the software they use on their computer. Um, so, um, And this may not be ChatGPT. This may be some other large language model that gets incorporated um, in the latest upgrade. So, for example, I remember, and you probably do as well, um, I remember when Microsoft Word went from not only having spell check, but grammar check, and it was still horrible. Oh, yes. And um, I'm thinking, especially with the latest news, I think that Microsoft Word will have a generative text feature very soon. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I could see that in the next rollout of Microsoft Word. Um, I don't know how good it will be. But I can I I think, you know, our products that we use daily. Yeah. And for me, I'll use Microsoft Word daily. Um, I'll use, you know, Outlook and stuff like that. I do believe that some of our favorite or most used software programs will start incorporating this technology. Now, whether we're actually going to chat GPT or not, I'm not sure. But we will be using some of the same technology that's behind it. And, and, you know, we've had. AI technology in some form or another. If you if you have an iPhone and you talk to Siri, yeah. that's AI all the same. Um, but mm-hmm. that's you know that's that stuff's been around for a while now. But I think the idea of generative AI, I certainly think, brings such a such a new threshold for how we go about getting certain types of work done. Right. And and I think it's it's really something incredible. Before we wrap this up, I have one last question. We talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, how difficult it is to keep up with all of these things. Yeah. Because we're talking to industrial and systems engineers for whether they're students or professionals, what do you recommend for them in terms of staying up to date and adapting to this new landscape of AI? It's the same thing with us staying up with any type of latest technology or software. Um, You're going to have to use it regularly. Uh, you'll have to attend workshops, conferences, online trainings, webinars, etc. Um, the the one thing I like to stress: this technology, it's not like a car. A new car model comes out every year. This is changing every week, <laughs> okay. if not more yeah. than that. <laughs> so it's it's like every week there's something new. Every time I log into ChatGPT, it's especially in the last couple of weeks we're we're recording this at towards the end of November in the last couple of weeks they've slightly changed their menus and you know that used to happen with say Microsoft Word 
but only every time it got a new version. Right Now it's like, this is changing every week. Something's changing. I have to click here, change this option, that sort of thing. And so the biggest thing will be you just have to keep using it. Otherwise, if you take a, a two-month break from using it, you're going to be lost. So that would be my recommendation. And that's that's the truth. <laughs> for for as much as uh, of a news junkie as I am, and with all the different news that comes out about uh, this technology, uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree. Usage is the key strategy. Yeah. So... Joe, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to explain all this, to talk about all this. Um, there was a lot of this I didn't fully understand until now. Uh, <laughs> and I'm very curious, as I'm sure you are, to see just what comes next. Well, thank you, David, for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to Chad GPT's first birthday in a few days. And I know this will be released around that time. So, And I will take questions from folks um, if they want to reach out to me. I'm, I am a member and volunteer with IISC and love to talk to my uh, fellow industrial systems engineers. Joe, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. You've been listening to Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Norcross, Georgia. We hope you'll share this and other Problem Solved episodes with your friends and colleagues. Learn more about sponsorship and advertising opportunities, as well as how you can become a member of IISE by visiting podcast.iise.org.